Open your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 27. Matthew, chapter 27. Continuing our study through the Gospel of Matthew. Last week, as we finished chapter 26, we saw Jesus again after his now arrest in the garden. He went to, was brought to trial at Annas' house and Caiaphas' house and talked of the illegalities of the fact and of many different things that went on with that that, uh, that were illegal under even Roman law, but certainly Jewish law. Saw Peter's denial of Jesus last week. And now we pick up chapter 27 today, verse 1. Now when morning came, all the chief priests and elders of the people conferred together against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him to Pilate, the governor. Again, I mentioned last week we looked at this initial trial taking place at night and it, it now tells us here that they came together in the morning hastily. Now it's morning. Now they're going to try to legitimize all of the illegalities of the previous evening and said, okay, well, let's get together now. Let's find him guilty. Okay, guilty. All right, let's take him to Pilate for sentencing, the final sentence. And obviously, again, they deliver him over. They want him crucified. They don't just want him dead. They want him crucified. That's why they're taking him to Pilate. Tells us now in verse 3, then when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that he had been condemned, he felt remorse. Now, Judas, here we see there, that things aren't going the way Judas thought they were going to go down. Something was in the plans, and now as Judas is, Judas is seeing that Jesus is now condemned, they are taking him away to have him executed, it says that he felt remorse. All of a sudden, this isn't, this isn't happening the way I thought it was supposed to. He felt remorse, and it says, and he returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. But they said, what is that to us? See to that yourself. And he threw the pieces of silver into the temple sanctuary and departed, and he went away, and he hanged himself. The chief priests took the pieces of silver and said, it is not lawful to put them into the temple treasury, since it is the price of blood. And they conferred together with the money bought, and with the money bought the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. For this reason, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then that which was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled, and they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of the one whose price has been set by the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. We see again. Things aren't going the way Judas thought. It says that he felt remorse. He regretted what was taking place. But the thing we need to focus here on and, and understand is there is a huge difference between remorse and repentance. There is a huge difference between feeling regret and actually feeling repentant. We see regret, remorse, it can even involve sorrow, deep sorrow. But sorrow does not indicate, again, repentance. Hebrews tells us that Esau, once he realized what had gone down with him giving up his inheritance, 
It says it grieved him so much he sought back for it even with tears. Tears are not an not a, a indication of repentance either because Hebrews clearly tells us that Esau was unrepentant. He did not repent. Judas knew he was wrong. Judas knew that what was happening was not in his plans, but he did not repent. You see, repentance involves a change. Repentance involves changing direction. It involves changing your heart. It involves changing your mind. It involves confession. Now, confession, we need to understand But what, what repentance involves, biblical confession. What does biblical confession mean? It means that you agree with God. It means that you agree with God about what sin is. Sin is not a boo-boo. Sin is not an accident. Sin is treason. Sin is an egregious affront to an almighty, holy God who is your creator. He is the one who set everything into motion. He is your creator. He is the one you are accountable to. He is perfect, holy, and righteous. Sin is treason against Almighty God. We also need to confess and agree what is sin. Sin is what he defines sin as to be, not what we do. Doesn't matter what the Supreme Court says. It doesn't matter what elected officials say. Quite frankly, it doesn't matter what the whole world says. All that matters is what God says. We need to agree what sin is and what is sin. We also need to understand confession says that I'm guilty. Confession says I have no excuse. I have no defense. I stand guilty before you. Repentance comes in now when we turn from that sin. We confess it, we identify the sin, and we turn from it. We change direction. That's what repentance is. I'm no longer going this way. I now turn, and I'm going this way. I'm walking away from my sin. I'm walking to Jesus. That's what Judas did not do. Judas felt sorry. Judas felt bad. Judas even felt so bad he went out and he killed himself. But that's not repentance. You see, Judas, in, in, this, in this moment of regret, in this moment of remorse, he turned back to the world. He turned back to the same people that he got in the trouble with at the beginning. He turned back to the religious leaders and brought it back and he said, I've betrayed innocent blood. And they said, sounds like your problem, pal. And by the way, that will always happen when we go into the world and when we return to the world with our problem. The world is just going to use you until it's done using you, until it's done with you. Judas betrayed his only friend if he would have just turned back to God, if he would have just turned back. And if you're here today and you have wandered away from God, if you have slipped back into the world, don't go to the world to solve your problem. Simply turn back to God. Turn back to Jesus. He stands open arms saying, just come back. Repentance. What, a sign that you have once repented is that you repent again and repent when we sin. We turn from it and we turn back to God. 
Well, we not only see the lack of repentance in Judas, we also see the continued hypocrisy of the religious leaders. Notice what they, they say in verse 6. If it wasn't so pathetic, it would almost be comical. They said, it is not lawful to put the money that Judas returns back into the temple treasury because it's the price of blood. They didn't have any problem taking the money out of the treasury to pay for blood, but to put it back in, oh, we can't do that. Hypocrisy, the many faces of hypocrisy we see in these religious leaders. We touched on one in the first couple of verses. They do this totally illegal trial that takes you know, all of these things, done in secret, done at night, done with all of these things, and then somehow in the morning now, they're going to try to legitimize it. They're going to try to cover up the, all of the stuff that they did by doing something good at the end of it all. And Oh, how many people do that, though? Live the whole week following the world, chasing after the world, and think, I'll just do something at the end of the week. I'll go to church on Sunday, and everything will be okay. As long as I read my devotion in the morning, doesn't matter what I do or say the rest of the day. It's a face of hypocrisy. It's another face of hypocrisy here when we, when we, when we see what they're doing. We're going to see in a moment when we look at John's account in John chapter 18, when they bring Jesus to Pilate, they won't go into the praetorium because crossing the threshold of the doorway would defile them and they wouldn't be able to partake in, in Passover. All of the rest of the stuff they've been doing, again, all of these other issues, they're thinking, okay, well, but if somebody saw me cross into there, oh, I can't do that. It's all about what other might see, face of hypocrisy. And here, it's like, well, it's not lawful for us to put the money back in. All of the other things, they, they, we don't get to pick and choose. We don't get to pick and choose which ones of the laws and which ones of the things that Jesus tells us that we are to follow. It's not a multiple choice. Jesus clearly lines out for us, even in Matthew chapter 5, how, how it's, it's a hard issue. It's not, just, it's not just following a bunch of legalistic things. It's a hard issue. He said, you've heard it said, don't commit murder. We say, cool, I've never killed anybody. He said, but if you harbor bitterness in your heart, if you harbor, harbor anger, hatred towards someone, you've committed murder in your heart. You've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. Great, never had an affair. Jesus said, if you've ever looked at a woman or women, man, with lust in your heart, you've committed adultery in your heart. He said, don't just love those who love you. Everybody does that. Love your enemies. He said, if you're, if you're at a gathering, if you're here, if you come to the altar with an offering and there remember someone has something against you, not if you have something against someone, if someone has a problem with you, leave your offering and go make it right. But they're the ones that are wrong. Tuh. They're the ones who hurt me. They should come to me. Jesus said, leave your offering. Go get it right. And then come back. I, we walk around. So, so many people walk around all the time and they say, I love Jesus. Jesus said, if you love me, 
you'll keep my commandments. I wonder how many people, if they met Jesus face to face, would say, legalist. I mean, how many of them do I have to keep? All of them. We don't get to pick and choose. Well, see this example in the hypocrisy of these religious leaders. Verse 11, back in our text, it says, Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor questioned him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said to him, It is as you say. And while he was being accused by the chief priests and elders, he did not answer. Then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? And he did not answer him with regard to even a single charge. So the governor was quite amazed. The chief priests, the the elders, they bring Jesus before Pilate. Tells us here that There were charges that are brought. Now, Matthew does not elaborate. Luke gives us a little hint as to some of the charges that are brought. In Luke chapter 23, it says, And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Forbidding to pay taxes? Jesus never said that. Jesus never told them not to pay their taxes. But Jesus didn't even open his mouth to defend them. He didn't say, they're lying. That's not true. I never said that. Jesus stands there and does not say anything. And it tells us that Pilate is amazed. Now, there's a little bit more to the, to the picture that we see in John's account that I think is kind of important in the discussion. So keep your finger here and turn to John chapter 18. John chapter 18, verse 28. John 18, verse 28, it says, Now then they, the religious leaders, led Jesus from Caiaphas into the praetorium. Now that's the area I was referring to earlier. It's a Roman room or building that the the military leader would headquarter himself when he would be in town. And in Jerusalem, there was actually a building that was set up, the Praetorium, but the Praetorium also, if he was in another place, might be a tent or something else. It was where he would be headquartered there, and because it was a Roman place and it was Passover, this is where it goes on. It says, and it was early, and they themselves did not enter the Praetorium so that they would not be defiled, as I mentioned earlier, but that they might eat the Passover, Therefore, Pilate went out to meet them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? So this conversation that Matthew records for us and the accusations that Luke records for us are taking place outside of the building, outside of the praetorium. They answered and said, if this man were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him to you. So Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him according to your law. And the Jews said to him, we are not permitted to put anyone to death to fulfill the word of Jesus, which he spoke signifying, but by what kind of death he was about to die. They said, we can't do this because we can't kill him. Well, that's true in a legal sense. The Romans didn't allow anybody to take care of executing except them, but that certainly never stopped the Jews before. 
from stoning people. We saw that, you look back a few chapters in John, the woman who was caught in adultery, right? They brought, him, brought her to Jesus. They had stones in their hands. They were going to stone her. And Jesus said, whoever is without sin, cast the first stone, right? I mean, they were ready to do it then. They're going to do it in Acts chapter 7 when they stone Stephen. What's the difference here? They don't want Jesus stoned. They want him crucified. And it tells us in John here, it says that was to fulfill. Even Jesus said, this is how it's all going to go down. I'm going to be crucified. Again, all of these things that are brought, these accusations, and it says Pilate was amazed. He's standing there. He's never seen this before. Somebody who is being brought and that, that they're asking for, for, for the death sentence, and here he is not even giving a defense. He's standing there hearing it all, and there, again, there's something about Jesus, no doubt, that he even sees something is different about him. No doubt in his, in his mind thinking, who are you? Well, Jesus is going to tell him, as we continue in John's account, Therefore, Pilate entered again into the praetorium and summoned Jesus. So Pilate goes inside and brings Jesus with him. The religious leaders are now not a part of the equation anymore. They're, they're outside. And he says to him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, are you saying this on your own initiative or did others tell you about me? Pilate answered, I am not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priest delivered you to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not have been handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Therefore, Pilate said to him, so you are a king. And Jesus answered, you say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born. And for this I have come into the world, to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? And when he said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no guilt in him. Jesus being questioned privately now by Pilate. And the exchange goes, as we just read, Jesus said, I am a king, but my kingdom isn't of this world. My kingdom is very different than the way things operate here. The kingdoms of the earth are set up by power-hungry people. It's driven by greed and force and pride, domination, self-interest. But we know that Jesus' kingdom is based on totally different principles. It's based on love. It's based on sacrifice, humility, righteousness, doing what is right, looking out for the interests of others instead of my own interests. And the world looks at that and says, you guys are nuts. You Christians are crazy. You're never going to get anywhere with that. You're not going to get ahead that way. Looking, putting other people's needs in front of your own. You guys are nuts. I could never do that. I'd never get what I want. I'd never be able to get as high as I want to be by doing that. And they look at it crazily. And again, no doubt, Pilate's thinking, you're a king. Standing here quiet, not answering the charges. Again, remember, his face is already beaten to a pulp. 
standing there bloody, standing before Pilate. King? But there's something about Jesus, again, that is turning over inside of him. And we see that again as it continues to play out. Jesus said the purpose, the reason he came was to testify to the truth. He says, all who are of the truth, hear my voice. And I believe it was said in such a way that that Jesus is appealing to Pilate. He's pleading with Pilate in what he's saying, not for release, not for a pardon, but that Pilate would take the bait, if you would, that Pilate would recognize the truth, that he would respond to what was said. He, he said the right thing, he just said it the wrong way. Pilate said, what is truth? Said it dismissively, sarcastically, because it says as soon as he said that, he walked away from Jesus. What is truth? And walked away. What if? What if? he would have taken advantage of the fact that the king of the universe was standing in front of him. And he said, tell me, Jesus, what is truth? And he had a heart that really wanted to hear and understand the answer. What is it? Tell me. But he didn't. He dismissed it. And he walked away. And I think this is important. Because again, it shows that something is going on inside a pilot. He walks outside and he says, I find no guilt in this man. Understand who Pilate is. Understand what, his, what he did a majority of his time was to write death certificates or death sentences. Crucify, crucify, crucify. He was a ruthless man. Romans were ruthless in their thing. They didn't look for reasons to get people off. They looked for reasons to get people on crosses. And Jesus gave him all the reason he needed. He said, I am a king. Treason. He gave him every reason. Pilate could have walked out of that room, not knowing, nobody knowing the difference, and he said, take him away. But he says, I find no fault in him. Well, back in Matthew... We pick up the narrative back in Matthew now in verse 15. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release to the people any one prisoner whom they wanted. At that time, they were holding a notorious prisoner named Barabbas. So when the people gathered together, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that because of envy they had handed him over, While he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent him a message saying, have nothing to do with that righteous man, for last night I suffered greatly in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to put Jesus to death. But the governor said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? And they all said, crucify him. And he said, why? What evil has he done? And they kept shouting all the more, crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing, but rather that a riot was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd, saying, I'm innocent of this man's blood. See to that yourselves. 
And all the people said, his blood shall be on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas for them. And after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. We're introduced to another character in the story, Barabbas. Tells us in Matthew's account here, he was notorious. Mark and Luke tell us he was a murderer. This guy had had few friends. He was, he was the, 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 the criminal of criminals. I, have, I, I believe that, that Pilate picked him to put up next to Jesus because he's looking for a, a way to for sure make, make sure Jesus gets released. He's stacking the deck. He's going to say, I'm going to pick the, the, biggest, the biggest loser of them all, and for sure Jesus is going to get to go. It says that he knew that he was handed over because of envy, so he's thinking, well, if they're envious of him, he must have a ton of people that love him and support him. So, so I'll do this. And he offers them this, this thing. And they pick Barabbas. They're crying out for Barabbas. And again, I've got to think, Pilate's thinking, how is... It was these same people, just a few days ago, when Jesus rode in, triumphantly on, on the donkey are crying, Hosanna, Hosanna, waving the palm branches, putting their, their blankets down on the road as he's right, crying out, praising him as the promised one, the Messiah that's coming. Pilate knew about that. Nothing that major goes on in Jerusalem while he's there and he doesn't know it. He's got eyes and ears everywhere. But now this same crowd is crying out to crucify him? Do, do you ask that question? Why? How, how do you do that? How do you get from this to this in just a few days? Well, again, probably because the same thing with Judas. They're looking at Jesus for something totally different. They're looking at Jesus to be this one that's going to lift the Roman oppression. They're looking for Jesus to be the one to save them and, and build, build, make, make Israel the world power again. And here he's standing tied up and bloody, and that's not what I expected. That's not what I expected Jesus to be. That's not how I expected God to act. Rhetorical question, how do we respond when God doesn't act or do as we expect or as we desire? How quickly our emotions can change. Well, as we see the narrative playing out for us here, Pilate's wife sends him a message privately, but imagine again, this is important. This is, say, I can't wait. This is not something that we can wait until lunch and I'll talk to you about. She gets it to him right in the middle of this and says, have nothing to do with this. This is a righteous man you're dealing with. Pilate will never be able to say, you know what, I, I didn't know, totally blindsided. No, he had a choice, a very clear choice. No doubt, I, I have no doubt reading through this and seeing how Pilate acted that there was something going on inside of him, in his very heart, that he had to reject, he had to harden his heart towards. And his wife now sending this, you know, and they, they took dreams very seriously back then. I had a dream last night specifically about this guy I've never seen before. Stay away from him. He's a righteous man, don't have anything to do with this, but Pilate chose his career his wealth, his success, pleasing his boss, 
He knew at this point if he released Jesus, there'd be a riot. And if there was a riot in Jerusalem during Passover, it might very well cost him his job. So he says, I, you know, I'm not gonna, I don't want anything to do with that. I'm going to stay away from that. Choosing that, letting the crowd choose. Pilate's reaction, he washes his hands, basically saying, okay, I'm clean of this. I'm, I'm innocent of all of this process. You take him. You do with it. Just by the way, that did nothing for Pilate. <laughs> Tells us that he releases Barabbas and he has Jesus scourged and sent away to be crucified. On Friday, Good Friday at 7 o'clock, we'll have our Good Friday service and we're going to pick up the story here. Then together I invite you to come back on Friday at 7. But I want to spend a couple minutes as we close and look at a couple of questions that are asked in our text and look at them together. First of all, the question that Pilate asked sarcastically, but I want to ask it seriously this morning, what is truth? What is truth? Well, first of all, there's, we need to understand there's a distinction, and specifically about what, what Jesus is talking about. There is such a thing as personal truth. It's subjective. It is determined and it matters based on the person and personal experience and personal preference where we can have differing, differing truths. For example, I would probably be able to split the room in half right now as to half of you think it's too cold and half of you think it's too warm. <laughs> what is truth to you? I know that because we get an equal proportion of complaints every week. It's too cold, it's too hot. The worship's too loud, it's not loud enough. Personal truth. I can tell you right now, the best sandwich, peanut butter and mustard. Not, not Dijon, French is yellow mustard. Personal preference. It's my truth. You don't have to. <laughs> That's your truth. My truth is it's awesome. But there is some truth that's absolute. It doesn't matter what your personal preference is. It's absolute. It's the same. There's no argument. Two plus two equals four. The world is round. The Broncos are the Super Bowl champions. <laughs> it's absolute truth. All right, that is my last Broncos Super Bowl reference. I know I promised it a couple weeks ago, but that's it. That's the last one. The problem comes when people want to have subjective truth when there's absolute truth involved. The problem comes into play when people deny absolute truth when it comes to personal things, specifically when it comes to about a relationship with God, specifically when it comes to afterlife, heaven and hell. Many people say, you know, okay, I'll give you, your Christians, your right to believe your truth, but don't tell me because what works for you doesn't work for me. Your truth, I have my truth, and all roads lead to heaven and all this other kind of stuff. It doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. Your truth, my truth, doesn't matter. The problem is, that's not true. The problem is with that kind of thinking is that there is absolute truth. Jesus said, I came to testify to the truth. 
And by the way, because he's God and because he's the creator, he's the only witness called to testify. Doesn't matter what anybody else thinks. He's the boss. He's the king. And he said, I came to testify to the truth. And he said, that truth is, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And it doesn't matter if you don't like that. It doesn't matter if that doesn't line up with your truth. It doesn't matter if the whole world decides that's not true. Because if the whole world decides that two plus two should equal five, guess what? Two plus two still equals four. We can't change absolute truth by popular opinion. And I say that because it leads me, and this is important because I want to come to the second question. The second question that's asked in our narrative is one that Pilate also asked. He said, who do you choose? We have Barabbas and we have Jesus who is called the Christ. Barabbas. Interesting, his last name. Barabbas, meaning bar, meaning son of. Abba means father. So his last name means son of the father. Now, in any version that you might have, there's a couple that have it still in there, but most of them, the early writers took it out, but there are many early manuscripts that tell us what Barabbas' first name was. Do you know what his first name was? Jesus. Now, I don't want to be dogmatic. I want to use this as an illustration to illustrate a point. The second question, who do you choose? Jesus, son of worldly father, son of Jesus of your own making, Jesus of what the world might tell you, or Jesus, the son of the father, Jesus the Christ, who do you choose? And it's important because only one of the two can save you. Only one of the two can redeem you from your sin. You see, as they stood there before them, there's something that, that is incredibly, uh, we need to understand this completely because they stand here, the two of them, and you need to choose one of them. Jesus, unequivocally innocent. Perfect. Not just innocent of the charges brought against him that day, but innocent against any charge ever brought against him for sin. Sinless, perfect. Barabbas, undeniably guilty. Barabbas no longer on trial. Barabbas is guilty. Barabbas has a death sentence. He's been convicted of his crimes and he is going to die. So now... We, we stand here, and, and here now we see that Barabbas now receives Jesus' just release. And Jesus receives Barabbas' just sentence. Barabbas that morning woke up knowing he was going to die that day. And now... He's walking free. 
You see, we can all, all of us, everyone in this room, we can relate to Barabbas. Because the Bible says that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and that the wages of sin is death. We all stand condemned. Trial over with a death sentence, eternal death, separated from the love of God, facing the wrath of God in hell, all of us. But Jesus, standing over here perfectly righteous, paid that debt. So that brings me to the third question. Pilate says, what am I to do with this Jesus? And that's a question we all have to answer. What am I going to do with Jesus? We can respond. If you're here today and you've never, you've never responded to that question, you've never received Jesus into your life, you've never accepted him as your Lord and your Savior, you can respond today like Pilate did and harden your heart even more. You can ignore the voices. You can ignore the Spirit right now. That, no doubt, the Holy Spirit was, was prompting Pilate at that time because everyone is given the opportunity. And like you, you could, you, like him, you could reject that. You could push that away. You could listen to the cl loud, clamoring voices of the world. Or you could respond. You can respond initially. You see, Pilate heard it all, but he rejected it. Romans 8 tells us, or Romans 10, I'm sorry, verse 8 says, but what does it say? The word is near you. In your mouth and in your heart, that is the word of faith which we are preaching. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. See, you need to believe in your heart. If you're here today and you've never done that, you need to believe in your heart that Jesus took your place. He died on the cross for you. He lived a perfect sinless life and then stood there innocent but took your guilt. You need to believe that he died for you on the cross. You need to believe that that paid the full penalty. You need to believe that God raised him from the dead. That means that your penalty was, was accepted that that payment was accepted in full on your behalf. But then it says you need to confess your, with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. That means he's in charge. That means you no longer are. That means you get off the throne of your heart and you say, Jesus, I want you to take over now. I want to follow you. I believe you're the king. I believe I'm your servant and I want to follow you. And if you've never done that before, I know how scary that thought is. But the Bible tells us that whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. And I'm living proof of that. I know how scary it is because I was there, but I made that decision, as many else in this room did. And none of us are disappointed. And it tells us in Romans chapter 8, but in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. When you submit your life to the King of Kings, the power that raised him from the dead then abides in you. He fights your battles. He will never leave you and never forsake you. 
But you have to take that step. I'm going to give you an opportunity to do that in a moment. But before that, if you're here today and you have at one time surrendered your life to the Lord, but you've walked away, you were at one time close to the Lord, but now you've drifted away, you need to do what Judas didn't. And that's to respond repentantly. Simply repent. Confess your sin. Confess what sin is. Confess what is sin in your life. And then turn from it and turn back to Jesus. And for the rest of us, we need to respond perpetually. That means continually. That means with all we have and all that we are. Our lives need to be an act of worship to the one who took our place. We can never forget that we stood guilty as charged. We stood with a death sentence over us, an eternal death sentence, and he said, I will take that. And he did. That should affect how we live. That should affect our desires. We need to love what he loves and hate what he hates. We need to love people and hate sin. We need to love people enough to talk to them about sin. We need to love people enough to tell them about Jesus. The Bible says that he desires that none should be lost, but that all should come to repentance. That should be our heart. And again, it might sound like a pretty simple thing, but it's profound, and and God can work in and through it. Take this card. Take a couple of these cards and pray. God, who do you want me to invite? And then invite them. And invite them to come with you. And by the way, I forgot to mention this earlier, do not give this, hear me, do not give this to somebody who attends another church, who is already a believer, who is already involved in another church. Don't do that. <laughs> Invite somebody who doesn't know Jesus. Invite somebody who's, who hasn't been to church in a long time. Invite somebody who has walked away from Jesus. or living. Invite that person. At Calvary, we're we're not interested in growing our church through bringing people from other churches. (laughs) Pray for those churches, pray for those people, but bring people that don't know Jesus. We also respond in worship, our praises and our singing. And as we get ready to do that now this morning, let's pray.